Revelation chapter 12 this morning. You take your Bibles and turn there. I'll have you stand in a few moments after some introductory comments. On Sunday mornings, we're going to study the book of Revelation. We're going to continue that study today. Let me give you just a little bit of backdrop for those who may be here for the first time, at least concerning uh, chapter 12, because our reading will be really in the latter part of the chapter. Our study of Revelation 12 introduces to us uh, in this text two great participants of the final chapter of human history, you know, as we know it. The text brings into view God's ancient enemy and our ongoing enemy, a creature that was called Lucifer once, now Satan, which is a title for adversary, the devil, a slanderer, uh, you know, this enemy of God, uh, Satan. This was a rebellious seraphim who in self-delusion believed that he could usurp, um, really ascend himself above the throne of God, that he could be greater than his own creator. And in a heavenly rebellion, Lucifer and one-third of the heavenly host who were seduced uh, by Lucifer were cast down out of their permanent residence in heaven and as Jesus said, they fell like lightning from their lofty positions to become the devil and what we might call demons, whose continued purpose is to overthrow and to thwart the purposes of God and His coming kingdom upon earth. Last week we studied the chief characteristic of the great red dragon, the devil, mentioned in verse 3 of our text, and that his greatest characteristic is that he is a deceiver. Uh, among his many negative characteristics, this idea of uh, someone in delusion or deceiver is really at the core and center of the identity of the devil. In eternity past, you know, his, his deceitfulness really began in his own heart. And he believed the lie. Not only did he propagate lies, but this deceiver deceived himself, and he believed the, really the first lie in eternity, and that is he could ascend, he could become greater, he could abide you know, on the throne of God. His own heart was delusioned. Beyond that lie, he continued his war with God by lying to Adam and Eve. Has God said? You know, God says, you know, don't do this, but if you take partake of this fruit, you can become like God. So, he not just was made a liar of himself, but he made a liar of humanity through Adam and Eve. And now all of us, as the Bible says, are born from the womb speaking lies. We have a nature in us that wants to believe lies. And then certainly we can be deceptive ourselves. So, so in these past centuries, the devil's chief schemes, his wiles, have been to alienate men from God um, by telling humanity lies. For 6,000 years, Satan... Um, who, by the way, Jesus called the father of lies, has been engaged in a worldwide uh, and personal disinformation campaign to cause us to stand, to stop us from trusting God, and to uh, lure us into giving in to sinful temptations. His dogma, his teachings, have been about the origins of man. And that surely that God is not a creator, that we have a, a natural um, origin in the idea of evolutionary thinking. And this lie 
has been so well propagated that the vast majority of humanity no longer believes in a creator is, as I said some weeks ago, that the world believes that we've come from muck and monkeys. Uh, he has lied to us about the idea of the family and his created order. You know, God has these great institutions of government, the church, and then the family, which is, consists of a man and a woman in those two genders alone. And, and, and the devil, especially in our age, has told such a lie about the nature of the family and sexuality and who we are. He tells lies about, you know, God can't be trusted. Therefore, you need to trust, trust your finances and your position. And he's told this lie that pleasure and worldly pursuits are better substitutes than aligning ourselves with the purposes of God. And so we've, we're introduced to this great character. The second character of chapter 12 is the woman who we have discovered is a reference to Israel. And she becomes the focus um, of this seven-year period at the end of history we call the Tribulation. Um, seven years of yet unfulfilled Jewish time that Daniel spoke about the prophet in chapters 7 through 12 of his book. This time is a time of great woe and difficulty, but also a time of national redemption and uh, reconciliation with Israel. As they finally discovered their Messiah, Jesus was in fact the Messiah, and then at the conclusion of this, enter into the Millennial Kingdom. God used the tribulation period to judge the world, but also to redeem and rescue Israel. So in these first few verses of 1 through 6, we looked at last week, we introduced Satan and the objects of his wrath, who are us, and his failed attempt to destroy the woman and her son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now his war continues in heaven and on earth. So with that said, let me ask you to stand. The world's longest introductions. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, here we go. We're going to back up one verse uh, because it, has a, it really identifies with the verse we're in going forward. And we're going to read verse number 6 of chapter 12, and we'll read to the end of verse 17. And the woman, Israel, fled into the wilderness, where she hath placed, where she had a place, prepared by God. What, that, what a great thing. That they should feed her, that they would be fed, for a thousand two hundred and threescore days, or three and a half years, the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard our loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and a half a time from the face of the serpent. Again, a Jewish idiom for three and a half years. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, 
that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth, and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which which keepeth the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, the book of Daniel, I don't want you to turn there, I just want you to listen. The book of Daniel, chapter 12, there's, there's some dots here being connected. These are the same events spoken in different times of history. And the Bible says, and at that time, the same time I believe that we're speaking about right here, shall Michael stand up, the great prince. He's this, the angel that's referred to as the archangel. The Jews believe he was the protector of Israel. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even in the same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. So we see Michael standing up, and in his actions there is now a time of great tribulation. Jesus himself alluded to this same time period in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, it really begins with his description of the first three and a half years called tribulation. The book, the chapter concludes with the last half referring to the great tribulation or the last three and a half years. And again, I just want you to listen because this would refer to a similar time as Revelation 12. It says, When you shall therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. This is when the Antichrist goes to the temple and before the world declares himself God. He says, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. The same fleeing that we see here in chapter 12. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of the house. Let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall there be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time no that shall ever be. And except that those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Our Heavenly Father, for the next few moments, Lord, as we just try to absorb, uh, Lord, this incredible imagery, uh, Lord, that contains truth and, Lord, literal events that will one day come to transpire. Lord, I pray you'd help us to intellectually understand it, but then, Lord, look for application within it for the time that we live in. And I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. I appreciate you doing that for so long. Revelation chapter 12 is an incredibly distilled past history of Satan's rebellion in heaven. And a condensed history or future history of his war in heaven and in Israel and with the world. In verse 7 unveils to us a future war in heaven between the devil and his fallen angels and Michael and his forces. Now in times past there was a original, a primordial, a first war in heaven between the devil and of course the forces of God. In this war instigated by Satan, we know that of course he failed. And he was expelled from a permanent residence in heaven. No longer 
Lucifer, who really was probably one of the inner uh, creatures, living ones, one of the seraphims before God, who was created in unimaginable splendor and glory, really designed to reflect the Shekinah glory in God. Um, he had a lofty position in this war. He fell not just for that position, but any permanent residence in heaven. And he was cast to the earth. However, he was able to retain the privilege of uh, presenting himself before God. And really, since his fall, since to today, uh, his great task is not just to deceive the world, but he stands as an accuser of the people of God. And he, he literally goes and says, hey, you know, Troy Durrell is not worthy to be a child of God. His life and his conduct and his character, and, and, and you know his sinfulness. And, and, and 1 Peter chapter 5 tells us that he is a constant accuser of the brethren. Zechariah, uh, the book of Zechariah tells us as well, chapter 3 I believe, that you know, he's an accuser of the brethren. We know that he, he stands as an accuser uh, uh, before Job. And you know, is Job really this kind of man? He, he has been that person, so he has some ability to stand in the presence of God where he accuses us of our unworthiness and why we should not be objects of redemption. And so while um, you know, he has been the God of the world and also the prince of the power of the air, Satan has had some ability to rule over the cosmos. Our text discloses that in time there's another great cosmic war that again is initiated by seven, uh, uh, Satan and his minions against the powers of God. And most likely, uh, our text doesn't contain all of this, Satan probably engages in this final war during the tribulationary period because he's probably been emboldened by the rapture of the church and the removal of the Holy Spirit that is within us. And so these events, you know, of course, we're not a part of this. And so Satan is probably emboldened by our absence and our restraining power. Uh, he's probably emboldened by the release of the demon hordes that we have already learned that have come from the abyss um, that an angel let loose from the, the, the demonic hordes that were released from the depths of the river Euphrates. And probably because this world rule, the Antichrist, uh, is successful in these three and a half years of uh, demonstrating rulership over the world. And he probably engages in this war because he knows his time is short. And if he can't get something done soon, his time will be over. So Satan assaults heaven again. And in verse 7, the Bible says that Michael and his angels um, fight against the devil, the dragon, and his. Now, this will not be the first time there has been a war, uh, a skirmish between these two kingdoms of our universe. Uh, in the book of Jude, we, we learned that the devil and Michael disputed over the body of Moses. We don't know exactly why, but probably Moses has some eschatological future. Uh, we, we believe he may be one of the two witnesses to come. Um, in Daniel chapter 10 and 12, uh, God was answering the prayer of Daniel, and there was some interference there run by the devil that Michael had to overcome with, with the help of others. Um, and so these two enemies have fought before. Of course, we know that in verse 8 of our text, Michael prevails, and now Satan loses uh, really all of his remained privileges in terms of being able to go to the courts of heaven and accuse us anymore. The, this century-long practice of accusing the brethren, it's done. Um, he's been cast out the, the first time in the book of Genesis, and now he's cast down in even a greater defeat by Michael and his angels, and he no longer can stand as an accuser 
of the brethren. And so Michael prevails and he's cast down, verse 9, to the earth a second time in an even greater defeat. And the devil, Diablos in the Greek, means slanderer, and Satan, his great title of antithesis to God, he is now confined in space and time to our planet, literally just to this area of the universe. In verse 10, as we have heard before, <clears throat> um, as Satan is cast down, heaven now breaks out in rejoicing yet again. In chapter 11, there's rejoicing. In some previous chapters, heaven, you know, already knowing the future is certain, broke out. But heaven breaks out again. These angelic choirs, the seraphim, the living beasts, the, the, all the elders, they, they, they sing God's praises yet another time as Satan is thrown out of heaven and is, you know, really his ultimate defeat is just on the horizon and his doom is sure. Heaven exalts its voice because another step has been taken to secure Satan's ultimate defeat and so that the kingdom of heaven can become the kingdom of earth as well. Now, if we look at our text and go back to verse 6, um, we see that this woman who we discovered last, will, uh, last week is Israel, um, flees to the wilderness or, or flees to the desert. And so let's make some sense of this. As Satan is now confined to the earth, um, his rage is intensified. And he's been defeated. Um, he, he still is in this unimaginable delusion that somehow he can thwart the purpose of God. So he turns his wrath and his anger to his ancient enemy, Israel. And Israel, as we know, is already regathered as a nation. There'll be a great awakening. There's already been the great awakening of the 144,000 evangelists um, who are, who are you know, sharing the gospel around the world. Um, <clears throat> they are winning people to Christ, no doubt. And either out of spite or a still deluded belief that he can somehow stop the kingdom of God coming, Satan attempts once again with greater fury than he ever has in the past to destroy Israel, these people of God. This persecution is so intense that, and I don't know how this happens at a national scale or a partial scale, but the Bible says that the woman, because of this unimaginable supernatural persecution, flees to the wilderness. And she, Israel will be nurtured there in some measure for the last three and a half years <clears throat> of this great tribulation. This unique and intense effort of Satan uh, to thwart the people of God um, will not be, as we know, the first time he's tried to destroy Israel. Satan originally sought to corrupt God's people, Adam and Eve, you know, not yet Israel speak up, but the people of God, by tempting them to sin. And his plan would have worked, minus God having a greater plan and reconciled us back to himself through the provision of our Lord Jesus Christ on his sacrificial death on the cross. Um, <clears throat> Satan, though, did not stop with Adam and Eve. In demonic perversion, he tried to pollute humanity's blood by causing demons to cohabitate with the sons of men to produce an offending race. And these angels who were engaged in this, we know, were 
confined in the chains of the abyss by God for this uh, unimaginable offense. Um, and the, the devil didn't stop. In the days of Esther, he inspired Haman and, you know, with Persia's help to destroy the entire nation, to create a genocide. And what a, a great story of rescue by uh, Esther that occurred there. He inspired Pharaoh of old to enslave Israel. They grew to greater power. Pharaoh's heart was darkened. Pharaoh was an antichrist of his time, of his age. He's also referred to the beast as a kind and type in the Old Testament. Egypt enslaved Israel to destroy them. Assyria, uh, Babylon, Greece, Rome. All these had a part in fighting through inspiration of the devil, fighting Israel. And since the days of Jesus' time, there has been this persecution of this nation of Israel as we see in chapter 12. Islam, you know, mortal enemies of Israel, has long sought to destroy them as a nation. The first crusaders um, going from England to the Holy Land uh, pillaged and uh, burned alive Jews in their homes and synagogues. King Edward I banned all Jews from England in 1290. England became the first nation to expel a Jewish population in its entirety. France and Spain followed suit in the ensuing years. The Jews were not really able to return to Europe as a whole and to these three countries until 1492 under the leadership of Oliver Cromwell. Through the Middle Ages, the Jews were blamed for natural disasters, for plagues, the Black Death, a disease. In 1881, they were blamed for the assassination of the Russian Tsar Alexander II. And after the, in the next four decades after that in Russia, tens of thousands of Jews were displaced from their homes, and during Stalin's reign, three million Jews were murdered. Of course, the 1930s, a satanically inspired Adolf Hitler, the Antichrist of his age, developed a racial policy called the Final Solution. And Hitler believed that the Jews were responsible for the sins of the world. And uh, he launched a campaign to literally exterminate the race. Six million Jewish men, women, and children were shot, were gassed, experimented on, and brutally murdered. But despite this war of Satan on God's people, they have survived. All the energy and effort, though, of these past attempts will be surpassed in what Jeremiah calls the time or the days of Jacob's troubles. This time when they have to fly and flee to the wilderness, or they would indeed be exterminated, uh, minus God's intervention, as a nation. The Bible tells us during these days, the last part of the tribulation, God will supernaturally intervene. In verse 6, which we've already looked at, you know, they will flee to the wilderness. 
and God will protect them in an undisclosed sanctuary. Some people think this might be Petra. Other people believe it might be in the plains of Edom and, and Moab of the ancient days. It doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't matter. I just know this. It's, it's really a type of what we see in the book of Exodus when the children of Israel came out of Egypt into the wilderness. And in that wilderness, this is, this is like God showing the same scene in two different acts. God will intervene and take care of them. God will supernaturally provide a place for them. Whether it's a, a place or I, I don't understand how it's going to be. I just know they're going to go to a place that God Himself will protect these people on a daily basis. There will be a dome of protection about them in some way that Satan cannot reach them or destroy them. In verse 14, it's described that God will give them wings as, you know, an eagle. Um, we don't have time in our study, but of course this is a metaphor because we're speaking of an entire nation. But eagles' wings, um, especially in Jewish literature and our own Bible, is a way of showing God's protection. That as God would fold His wings, as Jesus would fold His wings upon His people, they would be protected. In Deuteronomy 32, verses 9 through 11. Uh, Psalm 17, 8, 36, 7, 57, 1, 61, 4. I know you're catching all these. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Here's the idea. The idea of wings represent God's speed and God's protection. Here's the point. During these days of darkest persecution of all Satan's fury, it still doesn't match the protection of God. And he's able to protect his people from Satan's devices. And they are protected. Satan, as you can imagine, is growing um, increasingly frustrated. In the primordial past, in his initial rebellion, he failed. Through the epoch of time, he has failed. He initiated a new war with God, and Michael prevailed, and he lost. He tried to destroy Israel, and he lost. So in verse 15, in great frustration of being cast out of heaven, as you can imagine, and unable to initially destroy Israel, Satan sends a flood, a deluge against this nation to destroy them in this protective place of God. I, I don't know what the flood represents. Again, historically in the Bible, flood represents some kind of evil, some kind of danger. We know Satan is a liar. He's probably lying to the nations about the, the, the people of God. And they themselves, we know, are going to turn against Israel in the great battle of Armageddon in a future event. He's probably spewing forth this vitriol so the nations are against them, maybe trying to bring them into some kind of vulnerable place. Most likely this is a reference to some kind of military event where they are going to try to destroy this nation once again. And it's interesting, Satan opens his mouth and spews forth a flood. And the text says that, you know, basically God opens the earth's mouth out, uh, and swallows it all up. In other words, you know, he who is, uh, you know, for us is so much greater than he who is against us. And, and so we, we see this happening. And of course, as we already read, Matthew chapter 24, and these people hastily retreat there. This person continues, but God protects them even from this great deluge of persecution. The Bible says in verse 16, the earth at God's direction opens up her mouth and swallows up whatever it is that Satan hurls at his people. The earth, um, we, we know in Korah's rebellion, you know, when he stood against Moses, that in that rebellion, that the earth literally clave and the earth swallowed up these rebellious people. 
one way or another, this may be happening here, that God may be swallowing up whatever military effort is coming against them. Again, it's not. The point is this, is that God is protecting even against the most hostile attempt of Satan, God is greater. So, in verse 17, we see this third great attempt of Satan thwarted uh, in this chapter alone. And so, now Satan, last of all, turns his wrath upon the remnant. Um, this is probably the remainder of people who would be in Israel, who have not fled to the desert. Of course, there would be some. It, it may be those who are one to Christ, though they may be few during the tribulationary period, who have not taken the mark of the beast. And so, Satan may be having this idea, if I can't destroy them, I'll destroy anything else that has the representation of God. So, in verse 17, this remnant of her seed, the people who keep the commandments of God, are now the targets. Again, most likely the saved Gentiles, possibly the 144,000 in that God saved. And all this culminates in what we will discover in a few chapters, the battle of Armageddon and this final destruction. And Satan will be bound for a thousand years until the end of the millennial kingdom, which is a study yet to come. As always, it's like take a pause and think, wow, what a cool story. I mean, it's just so much imagery. Like, how, how do angels fight? <laughs> you know, they can't be killed, but we know they can exercise dominion. We know that angels can be restrained. It's fascinating. Just excitement about God wins, and so do we. You know, there's just, we could just stop and just rejoice in the majesty, the wonder of God. And, you know, He has this power to protect us as He does these people. But beyond the information and inspiration we find in God's ultimate victory, you know, we can bring into the hope of our future. There are some words here that I want to draw your attention to, some, an application. You know, again, last week we discussed in detail this great spiritual truth. And I, there's so much I want to say about it, um, more maybe in time. But you know, as Ephesians 6 tells us, we are engaged in a spiritual battle, battle all of us are. And sometimes people can get caught up in kind of some esoteric means of fighting a spiritual battle. But last week we said this, the greatest way to protect yourself spiritually is just to know the truth, to stay in the truth, to practice the truth, to know the doctrines of this book, to know the origin of humanity, to believe we have a creator, to, to accept the, the, the nature of God's created order, to stay in the truth, be grounded in the truth, uh, to know it, to live it, to stand upon God's Word. Knowing this book is the greatest way when Satan combated Jesus, he, he returned and fought that spiritual battle that God's Word said. And, and we need to know that. Uh, we need to stand in that truth that no matter what happens, you know, that God is for us. But verse 11, look there with me, if you will. There's all this kind of cosmic and supernatural warfare going on in chapter 12. And there's like this little side note, this caveat that's included in verse number 11. And it says, and they, we know this is speaking of humans, whether the tribulationary saints or the saints of all time, the Jews who are being protected, but it's God's people. And they overcame him, the adversary, 
by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they love not their lives unto death. You know, for all of us here this morning, we overcome um, our spiritual deficit. We overcome our fate. We, we overcome the fact that, you know, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And, and, and we overcome that, that unsurmountable surmountable deficit, that reality, not by any works of righteousness that we can do. For all of our righteousness is filthy rags. We don't overcome that deficit and our spiritual doom by being good people. Because the best of us are still rotten and horrible. As helpful as church attendance is, we don't overcome our spiritual deficit by being in church or write or practice, uh, saying some creed, doing any kind of religious observance. You and I overcome our spiritual deficit. Heaven becomes our home. We stand reconciled with God by one provision and one agency alone, and that is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is that sacrifice, it is that event, it was that ultimate great victory that transpired on the cross, that incredible transaction, that legally, that legal place where truth about us and our sinfulness and mercy, God's love met. They intersected on that cross. They, they as well as they kissed one another. And it is that place where we are able, because Christ took our sins imputed to him, he in return gave us by grace through faith and imputed an undeserved and unmerited righteousness. We stand before God one day, not because we are clean of ourselves, but we've been cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They overcome, we overcome the same way by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a hallelujah that is, that we are not left to our own devices. His provision, His blood, His cross, His suffering. We are... Um, we are saved. And on the earth, you know, we all know we live in this world, we live this life. And there are still things and evil to overcome, hardships and difficulties. And the Bible says this, it goes on to say, and they overcame him. The saints of all time have overcome the devil. Um, can't always prevent what he brings our way, but just because we're hurt doesn't mean we ever have to be defeated. Just because some things might be taken away doesn't mean he can ever take away that which matters most to us is that, is that is our salvation is hope. As Romans 8 says, nothing that the devil can do can take away our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we overcome in this life? By the word of their testimony. By long suffering. By patience. By fealty. Loyalty. To Christ, by steadfastness, by continuing in where we are supposed to go and how we're supposed to serve, in the end, no matter how bad it may look like the devil's beating us up, no matter how much we may look like, like Job in the moment of just defeat after defeat after defeat, if we hold true 
If we, yet though he slay me, I will not deny him in the end, because God always wins, we do too. We, we win by our confession. This word overcoming is a fascinating word in the Greek. It's the word that we get. Everyone here in this room knows it. The root of that word is Nike. We don't say it that way. We say Nike. And, you know, even good advertisers understand the power of a word. The word Nike means overcomer, means champion, it means winner, it means those who prevail, those who ultimately subdue. And the idea here is that we as God's children, if we remain faithful in our testimony and long-suffering and patience, that we can overcome spiritual condemnation, we can overcome the, uh, the attacks of the enemy. That having a testimony that in this present world we can be bigger than the things that come against us. We can have a witness, we can evidence the truth of God's grace in our hearts and declare that. And we're supposed to do that even unto death. So we read these words in verse 11. We've overcome, you know, through our testimony, our perseverance. You know, we, we read these words and there have been people who've misapplied them to some kind of salvation. You know, because Jesus says, you know, those who endure to the end will be saved. Um, that we have, to, we have to muster some kind of unfailing faithfulness, you know, for spiritual salvation. And I understand how people take those verses out of context. I can't always offer complete reconciliation, but I am sure of this. Everybody look up here. We are saved by grace through faith alone. Amen. Period. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by His mercy we are saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. saved. And then we are kept we are kept, continually, ongoing kept, not by our righteousness, not by our fealty, not by our ability, not even by our perseverance. We are kept by the power of God until the day of redemption. That is an absolute, unequivocal truth that all of us can rest assured on today, and I am sure thankful for it. Because I know the man in the mirror. And again, Romans 8 articulates that nothing can ever remove us from the love of God. So what is the overcoming here implied by the text? What, is, what, is, what kind of overcoming this world brings victory? Well, the idea, I think, in part is experiential victory. You and I can have a part. I, I, I don't have enough time, but briefly. We can have a part today, right now. And in any tribulation that comes, we can have a part in the, in the war against Satan. We can, we can have victory against his devices to, to destroy our lives, to destroy your family, to, to tear apart this church. We can, look here, let me say this way, practical. You know, no matter what the world throws at us, we have the power to stay together as a church. Because there may be a day when that's not easy to do. There may be a day when, you know, I might be thrown in prison for preaching something that's contrary to popular culture. And you know what, if that happens, this church can still stay together. We can be persecuted. They can take away our giving status or whatever else. Big deal. There is power for us to still overcome. No matter what this world throws at us, by the grace of God, we can be Hooper-Nike. We can be Nike. We can be champions. We can subdue even the great torrents and the floods that come at us because 
we have the Lord Jesus Christ on our side. We can have victory. We can be, we can be like Paul. We can be beaten. We can be cast down. We can be discouraged. We can experience all these things. And yet we do not have to ever admit defeat. We don't have to be beaten. We, by the power of God, can be more than that in this life. We can win. We can have a good attitude. We can, we can still do God's work even when it's incredibly hard to do. There's this question that we need to ask ourselves today. Is are we today participating? Are we part of the ultimate victory God is going to win? I understand this. The the battle's been won there. It's been won twice in heaven. No matter what we do or don't do, um, the outcome is the same. But the casualties may be different. The casualties may be different. You know, when there's a time in, in wars where the outcome is probably decided and both sides know who's going to win. And just because the side that's being beaten doesn't mean that they know they're going to lose, they're going to automatically throw up the flag and be done. Even though they know their doom is sure, they can still create casualty. Does that make sense to everybody? See, we're in that place. We know who's going to win. Do we not? If you're a child of God, you've already won. So, but it would be wrong of us to say, well, God wins, I win. And then to fall in some kind of apathy and indifference because there's still something that hangs in the balance. My family still hangs in the balance. My attitude hangs in the balance. People who need Christ hang in the balance. Do you follow me on that? That, that's still a great reality. So the question becomes, are we part of the victorious army? Are, are we allowing Satan, even in his losing moments, to still capture the hearts and souls of men? Are we absentee? Are we indifferent? Or even worse, are we complicit with the enemy in the way we live and the choices we make? On the winning side, but living like the losing one? 2 Timothy 2.4 says this, No man that warreth entangleth himself in the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Paul's talking to Timothy. It's instruction for Timothy, but really for every child of God. Everybody look up here. We started part of the service saying this, you are either part of one of two kingdoms, and that's the only choice there is, one of two. You are either part of the system and structure of this world that's under the rulership of Satan, or you are part of the kingdom of God. You are either a Christian, or you are something else. And everything else falls. Every religion, every paradigm, every philosophy in this postmodern world is in this world. It follows the kingdom of of Satan. There is no neutrality for you. There's no neutrality for you. 
There may be apathy as a soldier, but there's no neutrality. And if you're not for him, then what is the alternative? Then you would have to be what? Against him. A soldier who won't fight is a liability. Is that fair? Can I, let me do a paraphrase of 2 Timothy 2.4. No man that warreth entangle himself um, with the affairs of his life. Paraphrase. Troy Durrell paraphrase. A soldier must fight and go to war to win. Isn't that simple? A soldier has to fight to win. I'm part of the army. I'm no good to the army if I entangle myself in the affairs of this world and am not part of it. In other words, I'm not going to experience the victory in that. You can't win a war you won't fight in. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm just talking about you're not part of the effort. You're not overcoming. You're, you're allowing... We could all be here in a way, not ultimate spiritual casualties, but if Satan can come in here and take James, you out of the battle, that's a help. Not winning the war for him, but you might win someone to Christ, and that's a small victory for him. If I can take Butch out, you know, I take Alan out, Jerry out, if I can take people out, the devices of the devil don't change. But a soldier has to fight to win. I know it seems so watered down and removed. Passing out tracks, what we're trying to do, such a simple, such a simple remove step from actually winning someone to Christ. You know, why do we bother ourselves with this? Well, we just want to grow the church. Okay, you know what? I can't remember, I'm, I'm just past having to have certain numbers here. I was past that a long, long time ago. This is about, this is about eternity for people. We're not, if, if we won't even pass out a track, how can we possibly think we're engaged in the battle? What, what good is a soldier who will not fight? There won't be part, what, what does part of fighting mean? Well, if Satan's trying to keep people from being saved, ultimately, from God, then a huge part of being a soldier for Christ is just simple evangelism. Simple evangelism. It's about the souls of men. Do you, will you live victoriously enough to fight? Will you try to take, Satan's defeated, but can you go ahead and gather some of the ground back that he may have taken? We're going to allow him to advance? These people overcome in the tribulation because they stay true to their testimony to Christ. They stood for Christ. They witnessed for Christ. They fought for Christ to their death. That, that did not gain them spiritual salvation. They proved themselves hooper nike, bigger than the battle, bigger than the fight, bigger than the discouragement. 
Sometimes we're not bigger than a bad day. We're not bigger than the simple temptations to skip church to go fishing. And I'm not against fishing. We're not, we're not bigger than the devil's silly temptations to make us watch more TV than read the Bible. You follow what I'm saying? Hooper Nike. Super overcomers. We're saved, but are you a victor? Are you bigger than life? Because these people were bigger than death. They overcame. They overcome this, the most severe onslaught in history. They overcame. And we live in such muddled defeat with such a small vision and such little things and we can't even muster enough to overcome to grab a track in the back of the auditorium and pass it out to an individual because it's just too big. I'm not being mean. I'm just trying to have you see it from a different perspective. Are you, are you an overcomer? You can be an overcomer today. You can be an overcomer in your family. Imperfect church, can you be bigger than our failures? or imperfections? Will you be bigger than your circumstances? Can you be bigger than the difficulty of inviting someone to church? We need to overcome because we have the grace and the power to do it. Let me invite you to stand.